0: Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I am so excited to have someone with us today from the one and only Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Today we have Becca Rodomsky-Bish. She is the project leader of the Great Backyard Bird Count and many other wonderful things. Becca, welcome. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. What an honor. I feel like I'm talking to royalty, actually. <laughs> Cornell Lab is a big deal in the, in the birding world.
1: It is. It's a very, very special place. But we wouldn't be where we are without all of the amazing birders across the world. So it is an honor for us also to engage with people that love birds.
0: We do. We love them so much. So I'm having you on in February. This episode is going to go out February 13th because we are leading up to your big project, the Great Backyard Bird Count. Tell us about what that is.
1: Yeah, this is a really fun event. Um, We are in our 26th year, so it's been going on for a long time. Um, We started back in the day before eBird and Merlin and all those fun tools that some of your listeners may use on a daily basis existed. And um, what was really fun, I love to give this history, is that Um, The GBBC was sort of an experiment to see if people would actually submit bird sightings. So before they even started development on eBird, they were like, let's try something, let's give this a go see if people that love to watch birds would actually report them to us. And they did in huge numbers. So it started in the United States and Canada or specifically in the United States, actually. And then we soon expanded into Canada. And now it's this global count that happens every year for these four days. Um, In the United States, it runs over President's Day weekend every year. So it's usually the mid to end of February. Um, And it's a wonderful opportunity for people, no matter your age or experience with birds, to just sort of spend some time connecting with them and connecting to the natural world around you. We only ask that people... Spend time for about 15 minutes or more. You can spend as much as you want, um, but 15 minutes is the minimum. And tell us what you see. Um, you can do that using the Merlin tool, which is a really fun tool for identifying birds. You can even tell us if you only hear the bird. Maybe you don't see it, but you hear it. You can still report it as a sighting if, or as a, as a as a sound sighting. Um, and Or you could use eBird. If those, those are your listeners who maybe are more into the eBird tool, you can submit your birds that way, too. So it's just a really fun way to get our finger on the pulse of where birds are in February around the world um, to sort of continue to grow that database to better understand bird conservation issues, where we're seeing birds, where we're not seeing birds, maybe snowy owls, for example, showing up in unusual places or other species so we can just continue to monitor the health of our bird
0: populations my kids I was talking about this at the breakfast table this morning and they want to know if birds flying over count because every once in a while we get a pelican sailing over our house it's very lost but we can count the ones that are high in the air if we can identify them
1: absolutely yep any of them that you see um, flying over your house at your bird feeders that perch next to you on your morning walk um, any of them count and we want to definitely hear about them
0: for folks who might be in an apartment or lack of backyard, can they go sit in a nearby park or green space? Does that count or does it need to be explicit backyard? What about the front yard birds? Where's the, Where are the limits of this study?
1: Yes, very good question. Um, backyard is is sort of a um, just a fun word to say, you know, the earth, the world is our backyard. So wherever your backyard is, even if it's your local park um, or your patio or um your school or your business or your office. All of it counts wherever you see birds. We would love to have you share them with us.
0: And what do you do with the data that you gather? How is it used? What do you learn?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So what's neat is we've been doing this for 26 years. So we have a good amount of data about where birds are. And this data from the GBBC goes into a bigger database um, that is managed by the eBird team, which is another tool here at the lab. And researchers download that data all the time, every year for various questions that they're seeking to try and get answers to. So in this most recent year in 2022, there was about 159 scientific research papers where data from eBird was used. So GBBC data isn't always looked at specifically, but it's added to a database that is used to sort of um, get our finger on the pulse of what's going on with bird populations. And some of the questions researchers ask relate to climate change. So are we seeing birds moving Um, at different times of the year than they used to? Are we seeing their ranges expand or contract based on changes in possibly weather or habitat availability, um, those kinds of things. Are we seeing new species showing up to places? We've never seen them before. Um, Are we seeing mating patterns change, et cetera, et cetera. So any and all questions you can even really imagine about birds and what's going on, our data can be a part of sort of the data download that scientists are using to, to
0: try and answer those types of questions. That's fascinating. So you can learn all that from me telling you I, I saw six morning doves and 12 house sparrows and one wayward nuthatch in my yard.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, we love to focus on the good news, but the, the other piece of that is that we have been documenting a decline in birds in the last 30 years. And it is really important to understand what birds are declining and hopefully have a lot of hope, which is why I do the work that I do, we can begin to reverse that trend and bring birds back. But we we wouldn't know that that was happening if we weren't engaging citizen scientists like yourself and others to help us, t- to tell us about those birds that they're seeing and hearing.
0: That's one of the things I love. I'm a fairly new birder. I've been doing this for about three years, but I love that there's this encouragement for citizen scientists, and that can be children, that can be folks my age, that can be folks at the at the senior center who park near the window so that they can look out who are able to contribute to this wide body of research and and not just feel like we're helping, but actually literally be helping because you can't be in everyone's backyard. I I know you're really good at what you do, but that's that's a bridge too far to be in everybody's backyard that we can contribute, that we can be part of this, that we can notice things that then can be documented through photographs or sound clips that can help you in the work that you do because it's a big job and it's a big country. And those trends and patterns, I imagine, are much easier to see the more people participate in in a project like this. How many people do you usually have contributing roughly to the Great Backyard Bird Count?
1: Yeah. Well, the good news is people like yourself and many others are continuing to discover how incredible birds are. So the number does go up um, and has been historically going up every year. So last year was the highest participation we've ever seen. We had about 385,000 people from around the world contribute. Yeah. Massive, massive numbers. And just a couple of years ago, it was closer to 200,000. So each year we kind of pull in some more people. We saw a big uptake in um, people turning to birds during COVID. It was an opportunity for people to find something else to sort of enjoy and focus their energy on that didn't. sort of weigh them down like a lot of the other challenges that were going on in many people's lives. So a lot of people turn to birds and just connecting to nature in general during the COVID um, pandemic. So that was really incredible to actually see over the last couple of years, our participation rise. And perhaps like you, a lot of people are are into it now, you know, they've discovered it and they're like, this is fun. I can do this wherever I go. and um,
0: And I'm hooked and I'm going to keep doing it. It, it is a it is a delightfully addictive hobby. My my husband says he thought it would last for a month or two, and I grow weary of it. And he's like, "I'm I'm a believer now that this is this is part of you. This is not nice. going away. He's not a birder yet, but I'm working on him. You're I think I, birding comes for us all. It's just a matter of time. If you live long enough, birding will come for you.
1: Absolutely. Are your kids getting pulled into it at all? Or are they also discovering they are. and watching?
0: They are. They they watch in the backyard and they pay attention. My daughter is four. Our youngest is four. And she is the one who gets really, really excited about any bird she sees. And 98% of the time it's a crow. But but we go with that, right? Like that's also exciting to see a, gr- a crow in the grocery store parking lot. That's the gateway into birding. Yeah. And um, crows
1: are some of the smartest birds that we have. So you can tell her that they are
0: very precocious and very intelligent. So
1: t- tell me about they're a that. Good one. They're, tell me- they're a good one. They're a good one.
0: They're they're and they're everywhere, right? So you can see them. My my a friend of mine was calling them those dirty garbage birds and I was like, "No, no, 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 no." No, I read somewhere they're as smart as a 7-year-old, as smart as a second grader. Like they're they're amazing. They are. Their their auditory
1: capacity to mimic and make sounds and calls is phenomenal. They're they're very loyal. Um they will mate with their 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 partner for as long as possible. I don't know if crows do, but I know ravens will mate for life. Mm. Um, so they're just very very smart and intuitive, and they're obviously they've evolved to live around humans very effectively. Um, so they've been able to take advantage of you know various opportunities of living near and around human beings.
0: They are not in decline, from what I understand. The crows are doing fine. It's it's some of the other more fragile species that we're a little little concerned about. Yes, yes, absolutely. So folks can do the Great Backyard Bird Count through Merlin, through eBird. Those are both resources from the Cornell Lab. um, And I'll link to those in the show notes if you're not familiar. Those are free apps. They're easy to use. They're super fun. They're a way to get connected with the birding community, or you can just use them on your own one of my favorite things about the Merlin app is that there is a way to ID a bird by sight. So how big is it? What is it doing? Where are you? It won't show you birds in Alaska if you're in California. Um, And then you can select your bird from a list, but it also has a sound ID component where you can record a little snippet of the bird and it will tell you. And I often hear them before I see them. So it helps me to know what I'm looking for. Oh, that's a ruby crowned kinglet. It's super tiny, but now I know the shape and the color and where to look for it. It's a wonderful tool, totally free. Highly recommend. How long have those tools been in use? How were those developed at the Cornell Lab? Because they're so helpful.
1: Yeah, they're amazing. And and I want to plug the people that use them, like yourself and others. These tools get better at what they do the more people that use them. So Merlin ID was only able to expand to Sound ID because we had enough people out there Recording songs and sharing them with us through the Macaulay library and then being able to use that data to develop to develop these tools that are so accurate. So there's some AI, there's some artificial intelligence going on here that really makes these tools work. And a lot of times it's the users that are helping push that. But yeah, so Merlin and eBird are both relatively newish. Um Uh, eBird came first. And that actually came uh, in the early 2000s. They started working on that soon after they saw the success with GBBC, they started working on that. And I think it was officially launched in about 2002. So it hasn't been around a long time. And it's constantly expanding. It's getting bigger. We add new languages every year, because as you can imagine, um, now that it's an international tool, we have to have a lot of languages and we have to have a lot of dialects, right? And there's, there's just a lot of detail that comes into trying to create a world that's captivated and paying attention to the bird population. Same thing with Merlin. That's a newer tool. I don't actually know exactly how long Merlin's been around. It's been about a decade, I would say, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, And again, that was a tool designed mostly to try and help support people that are brand new to birds and or when you travel, um, and you're in a new area and you may not know the birds to help support your journey and sort of expanding your knowledge of birds. And so, as you say, it's really easy to use. You can either, um, uh, describe the bird and describe where you saw it, the time of day, et cetera, time of year, or you can record a sound. Or if you're quick, you can take a picture and you can actually photograph the bird, upload it to Merlin. And with a pretty accurate success rate, it will tell you what, what you
0: saw. It's really astonishingly accurate. Every once in a while, I have it open and I'm like, there's not a sandpiper here. Merlin, you're leading me astray. And then I turn around and there's a sandpiper. and I'm like, okay, I'm sorry for doubting you, Merlin. You know all the things.
1: (laughs) You are all knowing.
0: (laughs) The, the, a few weeks ago, I was out hiking near our house. We live in, in Southern California and I was you know, seeing all my usuals and, and using my Merlin sound ID. And then there was this bird call and I couldn't recognize it. And Merlin didn't know what it was. And I was doing my usual. I'm frustrated with you, Merlin. You're letting me down. What is the deal? It never lets me down, but I always go to, it can't possibly be human error. It must be Merlin. <laughs> And finally, I look into the backyard that's below the hiking trail, and I see a bird cage, and there's some sort of exotic bird. And again, I'm like, okay, all right, there's some exotic bird singing a song. And of course, Merlin, it's not native to Southern California. So Merlin doesn't know what it is. And it was just very funny. Merlin knows all the things, but it doesn't know the parrot from Argentina that was in the cage in the backyard.
1: That is fascinating. What a great story. And a lot of people will say that they try to trick, you know, Merlin, they'll try to play recordings to see if it can pick it up. But that, you bring up a really good point. If people are going to use Merlin, it's really important to have a bird, the bird pack for the area with which you might be seeing birds. So you could knock on your neighbor's door and say, where is this bird from? And you could download the pack from that country and I bet it would ID it for you. Because as you can imagine, this is so much data to be able to like have a tool that has every bird call and every bird ID that we've been able to identify is a lot. And so we break it down into packs so that, and you can turn those packs on and off when you travel um, so that you know that you're really, only focusing on the birds in the area with which you are.
0: And that is one of the most exciting things about traveling is I get to download my new Merlin pack. I have my Western US birds, but I I visited a friend in Massachusetts and I was like, I'm going to download my East Coast birds and got to see so many birds that are so common out there. But for someone who's not from the East Coast, every blue jay was a revelation. I was was obnoxious to the friends I was hiking (laughs) with. I was like, no, no, there's another one. And they're like, yeah, they're everywhere.
1: Everywhere. And they drive me crazy sometimes. (laughs) They steal all the seeds out of my bird feeder. <laughs> they got a
0: lot of personality and a big appetite.
1: They do. They do.
0: What birds are you seeing? You're you're located near Ithaca where the Cornell Lab is located. Mm-hmm. What birds are you seeing right now in January and into February and March in, in New York?
1: Yeah. Well, just like you, we have a lot of our regional regulars, including the Blue Jays, the Northern Cardinals, which I don't you guys don't get Northern Cardinals out there in California. No, that's another bright, beautiful one, but pretty common out here. Lots of chickadees, black capped chickadees, um, tip mice, tufted tip mice. I know you guys have a couple different species. You have the juniper tip mice out
0: there and what else? You got a couple tip mice. So you have oak, some tip oak mice. mice. Oak. There you yeah. go. The tufted are the cutest though. I think they win in the cuteness contest. They are pretty cute.
1: But my favorite at my feeders right now, and they have blessed us now for a couple weeks, I'm hoping they're here for GBBC, are evening gross beaks. Ooh. Have you seen? They're stunning. They're black and yellow. The males in particular are very bright, but the females are kind of like the northern cardinal females. They're muted, but they're still just as beautiful. They have this kind of greenish yellow beak. Um, oh, they're just one of my favorite birds. And they do something called erupting. Um, And that's kind of perhaps what was going on with the snowy owl that you all had. Um, Eruptions happen for various species when they're having a hard time accessing resources where they are normally spending their winters. And so we knew that there was going to be eruptions this year because they do surveys every fall and they analyze the tree um, fruit drops and seed drops in Canada. And they say, hmm, this is a good year. Birds probably won't be going south or, ooh, this is not a good year. Birds aren't going to have enough food, so they're probably going to push down into more of the southern. Southern areas to get their food resources. So these evening grosbeaks are not normally here. They're doing what's called an eruption and they're spending time here because they're able to access resources, but they weren't able to find those resources in their
0: normal winter range. Eruption. I've never heard that. That's, that's fascinating. Volcanoes yeah. and birds. There you go. All the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about, you do a lot of work with, with backyards and natural habitats and how can we care well for the birds that come to our backyards? Is it feeders? Is it native plants? Is it a combination of those? Um, Tell us how to care well for the birds in our backyards. And I'm here in Southern California, you're in New York, but we have listeners all across the country. Great. Um, man, we could do a whole episode on that. I'll give you the short the short and the dirty
1: version. Um, Perfect, and, and then I'll have you back and we'll do this okay. again. That sounds great. Um, well, I would say in anybody that's in a kind of a drier, warmer area, like where you are and then across the Southwest, water. Number one, water is key to um, birds. Just like us, they need to drink. Um, and as many people probably know, some of those water resources are drying up, not just for us, but for birds. So putting out just a small, shallow, Saucer of water, no deep than no no deeper than two inches or so. Birds don't like real deep water, um, and and you know if it can be moving, that's a bonus. If you can put a little percolator or something in it to keep the water moving, they love it. They'll drink out of it. They'll bathe out of it. You will get birds at in your backyard or on your patio that you wouldn't see even with a feeder because all birds need water. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to see more birds, you certainly can feed them. Um, A lot of people ask, is feeding birds good or bad? Um, And the answer is the data so far that we've done, the research has shown that it's not – bad for the birds. Whether it's good or not, it's hard to say. It's really hard to measure that. But in general, it doesn't seem to be harming birds. The only exception is if there is a disease outbreak that could be transmitted on feeders. And then you want to look at your local DEC and see if that's a problem in your area, take them down, leave them down, um, and clean your feeders really well. So feeding is an option. My favorite and my go-to, which is my passion, is Create Habitat. 100%. Water and habitat, I think, are the two. So, really learning about what plants in your area birds naturally would feed on and have been feeding on for hundreds and thousands of years. Get that on your patio in a pot. Get it in your backyard or your front yard, wherever you can. Encourage your schools, encourage your businesses to really be putting in plants that those birds are used to seeing. And the reason why that's so important that a lot of people don't realize is really it's because of the insects. It's not just the fruit and the nuts. It's the insects that lay their eggs on those plants. Those, inse- or those eggs become caterpillars and larvae. And about 98% of North American songbirds feed their young insects while they're raising young. So if we want to see longevity in terms of healthy bird populations, we need to have enough insects and caterpillars to be feeding the babies that will then become the adult
0: birds. So habitat and water, I would say, if I had to narrow it to two. big number. Wow. And now that I'm thinking about that, that makes sense. It'd be so much easier to digest. And and you know, if you're a tiny baby bird, those seeds are hard, but to get a mite or to get a to get a fly, that's fascinating. Okay. And if we can't get a little percolator, how often should we replace that water if we've got our shallow dish out there? Because we don't want any any birds getting sick or, or mosquitoes. We really don't want mosquitoes. No.
1: Yeah. Mosquito life cycle is about a week. So certainly within a week to disrupt that mosquito life cycle. But every three to four days, I usually recommend people to change their water. And in your region, you must have, I would imagine, a lot of hummingbird feeder... Um, people hummingbird feeders can be great um if you have natural flowering plants it's even better right so really putting in those natural flowering plants but bird uh, hummingbird feeders can be particularly precarious for hummingbirds you can sometimes do more harm than good so making sure that you are changing that sugar water every three to five days max Mm -hmm. um And never putting in the red dye. That red dye is not good for birds, and it doesn't do anything except be a pretty red color. So using just your sugar water concentration solution, changing it every three to five days, and sometimes even closer to two days if it's a really hot period of time, because that fermentation in the sugar can happen, and that can cause hummingbirds to actually get sick.
0: Oh, that's really good to know because we have days where it's 105 degrees, and I'm like, we're feeding them tea. You know, we're we basically making the birds tea. At what point should we should we change that out? Yeah. That's really good to know. Yeah, our neighbors have this wonderful giant honeysuckle bush, and it's always nice. full of hummingbirds. So we don't have a hummingbird feeder in our yard, but they are very very popular. And I always think about it in the heat. Yes. Those are really really good tips. We we moved into our house and it had all this crabgrass in the backyard, and we thought, oh, we should replace that. And then we noticed the birds love it. And there's a little bit of millet and they love whatever the weeds are that flower sometimes. And so we're like, you know what, we're, we're, we're not going to replace that with sod or turf. We're going to let it be. And the juncos love it. And the, you know, the morning doves are hanging out. And so sometimes the easy, lazy path is actually the best path for the birds.
1: Yeah. If you have grass, let it go to seed, you know, that let it, let it do its thing. And the birds, the ground um, foragers, as you just described, will absolutely enjoy it
0: they're so happy. I don't want to disrupt them. And it saved us <laughs> hundreds of dollars. So it was a win-win. There you go. Nice. So Becca, you are the project leader for the GBBC, which the Great British Bake Off is GBBO. There's a there's a wonderful kinship there. I think they're both delightful. Um, but you also do work with a nesting project. Will you tell yes. us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Sure. I'd love to. Yeah. So the GBBC is obviously a concentrated project because it always runs in February. So it keeps me busy for a good solid three or four months. But then um, the rest of the year, I work on a project that's called Nest Quest Go. And it's kind of an offshoot of a citizen science project called Nest Watch here at the lab. For those people that like to watch nesting birds, they should check out Nest Watch. And Nest Quest Go was a collection of about 300,000 historical nest record cards that we had in-house and have literally been sitting in cabinets. They've been used on a couple of research projects for specific species, but they've never been able to sort of be analyzed on the scale that we'd like to, to understand um, the the historical patterns of nesting birds. So um, they've been sitting and we've been figuring out how do we use this data? And there's a tool called Zooniverse, which um, is a crowdsourced tool. So scientists, like us can upload records that we wouldn't be able to analyze because it's not in a spreadsheet form. We can upload it and we can engage people in helping to pull the data off of of these records that we need in order to analyze it. Um, And so we've been engaged in that work for the last three years. And I am happy to say we have totally digitized, made digital forms um, of these 300 Thousand nest records. Who were? Sorry, I should have said these are people that were watching nests back in the nineteen sixties and seventies and recording what they were seeing and whether eggs hatched, whether young fledged, etc. And so that's recorded on these cards, um, which is very valuable data. Um, and so now we are getting that data. We have all three hundred thousand. Cards digitized, and we have about 190,000 of them with actual data. And so we're uploading that into the NestWatch database so that researchers that are doing research specifically on nesting birds can have this really expansive amount of time. They go back as early as the 1960s and up to the early 2000s. So they can download data from, you know, more than 50 years, basically, of nesting birds and begin to ask and answer questions that we wouldn't know otherwise, because historical data sets are very, very hard to come across.
0: That's fascinating. Good, yeah. So many layers of things to learn when it comes to birds.
1: It is, it is. And we are still... um, in the stages of sort of figuring out what, where and how people will use this data, because it's pretty immense. We have one data set from a particular area in Montana that's all the Mountain Bluebird data, and literally volunteers have been monitoring this site for 60 years. And Mm -hmm. we have all of that data in our database. And you can only imagine the researchers drooling at like, We could ask so many questions by looking at this. So we're excited to see how researchers will continue to sort of tap this database and and ask and answer questions using it.
0: I think that is such an interesting piece of the scientific world. I studied the humanities. I was an English major. And, and, you know, the more I learn about the scientific community and how they decide which questions to ask, because like you said, you can have a tremendous pile of data, but it doesn't mean anything on its own. It's just facts. How do we interpret them? What are the questions we're asking? What are the next questions we want to ask? And what data do we need to be able to answer those questions? And then there's the fact that the birds don't care about your hypothesis. The birds are (laughs) just going to do what they do. (laughs)
1: <laughs> absolutely absolutely and a lot of times these data sets the big ones in particular they're overlaid on top of each other so like if you have a climate question if you can overlay that with some bird data it makes your your research and your answers a lot stronger right because you have these big data sets that you're sort of comparing to each other and overlaying. so yeah you're 100 percent correct that scientists can only answer questions if they have the data to do that and sometimes they have to pull that data from a lot of different places
0: It sounds exciting and frustrating at the same time. Very. (laughs) <laughs> like what how are we going to stitch these things together it's it's such important beautiful work and you talked about some of the some of the data that you get and that's coming in is is discouraging or it's sad you see the decline in bird, bird populations which many people believe is tied to the decline in certain insect populations because it's all connected we are all connected um where are you finding hope these days what sorts of hope is out there in the midst of some some difficult data some difficult information
1: yeah, what a great question. I'm I'm like you. I like to lean into the hope because it keeps me going. Um, I would say there's two things that make me really hopeful. The amount of people that are really turning their attention to birds is really hopeful to me. Um, there's very few instances anymore where I don't see some sign that people are paying attention. Um, and so that provides a lot of hope we see growth we've seen growth in all of our projects across the lab which is really inspiring and not just in the united states right this isn't a solution we can solve birds are dynamic they move many of them only spend part of their lives um here and then they go elsewhere so it's really important that we're getting a global um awareness happening and that's inspiring to me and then the other piece is the habitat um Mm. We are losing habitat. And we as individuals, whether we have a patio, whether we have a front yard, a backyard, whether we're a teacher at a school, um, a CEO of an organization, we could choose to put habitat back in the ground that is supposed to be there, and that will almost immediately have an, uh, an impact on what you're seeing and what you're supporting. I, um, I on my property, we've been intentionally for the last five years putting in a ton of habitat, and each year I kid you not, I see new birds, I see new butterflies, I see new bees. Like it is almost an instantaneous impact that you have because it's literally true. If you plant it, they will come. It may not be the next year, but it might be in five years. Um, And it's just really inspiring. So those are the two pieces. We have power to, to, to change this. We can do something about it. And more people are actually aware that we need to do something about it and to get involved so that those both keep me going
0: those are such hopeful things and I love how you underscored that that we can all do something even if it's just a window box even if it's just a you know a planter on your patio that I think sometimes we get this idea that if we can't do all of it if we can't solve it then we might not as we might as well not even bother but these little things add up my backyard when added to your backyard when added to the window box of my neighbor is is significant for the birds because birds measure things in one insect and one seed and 1 degree of temperature and and one sip of water and those those things can have a tremendous impact especially 100%. knowing we're not alone
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly. You, you do. You really begin to feel a part of something bigger because we are um, in our human existence. It's easy to not feel that. But the minute you start to just wet your palate and get involved, you, you really begin to see like, oh, I am completely interconnected with everything around me. And I can choose how that connection is. If it's a positive one, um, I, I have things
0: I can do to make it more positive. Mm-hmm. Every little bit counts Mm -hmm. one way or the other every little bit counts right sitting in the driveway idling my my engine because I didn't want to I want to finish my podcast that matters (laughs) in the opposite direction right turn it off turn off the engine um so Becca where can we follow the good work that you are doing the good work that the Cornell lab is doing there's Ebert and Merlin where else can we read up and and learn more from all of you
1: Yeah. If you, if people are listening and they are excited about trying this really great, uh, four day bird count event, you don't have to watch all four days. I wanted to articulate that you can only watch, um, for one day or, uh, know, two days,
0: whatever. It's very open. You can do you have bird- any people who take this challenge and they're like all four days, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to eat. And then they turn in like 16,000 birds and you're like, settle down. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> um, we do, we do have some <laughs> very committed, uh, birders. Absolutely. Last year, India, I just interviewed actually bird count India, which is an organization in India and one school submitted over 4,000 checklists. It was astounding. So yeah, some people get really into this and some people take this as their own form of competition, right? You know, they'll, they'll get their families all together and be like, I'm going to get more lists than you. Um, So yes, it's fun. It's all good, 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 honest fun. And birdcount.org is the website for the GBBC. If people want to look up on, on our website, and we actually have links out to Merlin and eBird there on under how to participate, because those are the two tools. So GBBC is the event we use these powerful data tools for people to actually
0: submit their data to us. So those tools are Merlin and eBird. Awesome. And I will link to all of those things in the show notes. So you can can all just click over and participate with us. I'm doing it. I bet Becca's Mm -hmm. doing it. You can't be the project leader if you don't do it yourself. (laughs) We're going to be doing the Great Backyard Bird Count February 17th through the 20th this year and mark your calendar for next year, President's Mm -hmm. Weekend. And Becca, I have to ask you, what is your favorite bird? Oh,
1: it's so hard to choose, right, Courtney? <laughs> um, I would love to hear your answer to this too. My favorite bird, I actually, um, I don't think they're as far west as you all, but I love the uh, American woodcock, also hmm. known as
0: the timberdoodle. Have you heard of or seen this bird before? I haven't, but someone was tweeting the other day about that being its nickname, which I'd never heard. And it's just, it's delightful. Both of the
1: names, both of the names just make me laugh. Yes. Um, They should be arriving actually in my area in another month or so. They're one of the earliest ones to kind of return in the spring and they have the most elaborate mating dance. So if you have never heard of this bird, I challenge you all to Google the American woodcock or the timberdoodle and check out these there's a plethora of hilarious videos that they have made about this little bird and i learned about their dance and i heard it cuz you can you can see this at dusk they do this display and ever since i just think they are the most fantastic bird so that's my favorite what what is yours i would love to hear
0: I love that yours is a migratory bird. So you have this anticipation of, I know it's going to come back. I'm watching for the next month. There is such a spark of delight when a migratory bird comes back for the first time, you know, it's like, Oh, they they're back. It happened again. It it blows my mind. The, The white crowned sparrow first week of October, every year they come back and it, it just, Oh, I love it. Um, I I it feels like picking a favorite child. How could you pick a favorite child? Um but I do have a song sparrow tattooed on my leg. There's something Aww. about the they're they're all over. They have so many different songs and there are a lot of photographs of them and studies of them singing even in really nasty weather. And I want to be like that. I want to be singing <laughs> in this storm. So that's my inspiration. It's the only tattoo I have, the only tattoo I'm ever going to get. And I've got a little song sparrow that travels everywhere with me. That's so.
1: beautiful. And they're very well and wide dispersed too. You can see song sparrows almost everywhere. So what a what a great choice. Very sweet.
0: They're with me in Southern California. They were with me growing up in Northern Wisconsin. They're they're all over, and every time I see one, which is pretty frequently, it, it just feels like this little reminder that that I'm seen and loved, and uh, and they, and sometimes they get this little Mohawk when they get ruffled yeah. up, and I, I like that too. I've got I've got the short pixie cut that we've got the song Sparrow, and I have the same hair. <laughs> Very sweet. That's great. I love it. Well, Becca, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about new birding or our experienced birders or We're all going to look up the Woodcock. I want to see yes. the mating the mating
1: dance of the woodcock for sure. Yes. Do 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 that. No, just just come out, have fun. I will say one other thing. There may be people who are listening and living alone and thinking, I don't know, look up and see if there's people around you that are going out for the GBBC. The mm. uh, we par- we partner with Audubon. The Great Backyard Bird Count is actually the lab, Audubon and Birds Canada. There's chapters all over, many of them in Southern California and various places, and you could hook up with some people that are going out and birding. Birding Is such a fun, beautiful activity to do alone, but it also can be really fun to go out with other people and see what others are seeing. So if you're alone and you'd like to participate but a little hesitant, see if you can find some people around you that are going
0: out. That's a really, really good word. Our, our local chapter of the Audubon is the CN Sage Audubon, and they do phenomenal work. And the wonderful thing about many of these societies is you don't need to know anything. You just right. show up and you'll be surrounded by people who have more experience, are so excited to share their knowledge. I have never once been made to feel like, oh, really? You thought that was a Cooper's Hawk? That's not a Cooper's Hawk. You know, they 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 are generous and gracious. Yes. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good way to meet new friends who are the same brand of delightful Bird nerd, as you are.
1: I love it. I love it. And that is the best term. Don't let anybody judge the bird nerd turn. Oh, I've all- got a t shirt. Oh, yeah.
0: It is, a, <laughs> it is a badge of honor. Yeah. Friends sent it to it. me like, please don't be insulted. I was like, oh, I'm going to wear this all the time. All the time. There you go. Becca. Thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. Thank you more than anything for the work that you do and just the faithfulness of this entire organization and the way that it is lifting up birds and in doing so lifting up each one of us and and making this world a little bit brighter, a little bit better, and a little bit more feathery.
1: (laughs) I love it. Thank you, Courtney. This has been a delight.
0: The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. soul.
1: Yes it does.